me. John chapter 3 and verse 4. Part of a short passage, verses 3 to 5 in this chapter. If you're apostolic, it's a great passage to commit to memory. Not that it's more important than others, but it's a powerful statement about our need to be born again. John 3 and 5 says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. For just a few minutes on this Sunday night, I'm going to be preaching about doors closing. Doors closing. Amen. Hopefully that will make sense soon. Jesus described the kingdom of God as something that needed to be entered into. Something that needed... He said that if we were going to enter into this kingdom, we needed to be born of water and the Spirit. And uh, at the risk of offending anybody, I think I'm on safe ground tonight to, to suggest that this refers to anything other than being baptized in Jesus' name and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost requires some pretty creative theology because the testimony is consistent throughout the Word of God. Jesus also said that we should strive to enter in at the straight or the narrow gate because the broad way leads to destruction. In John chapter 10, Jesus spoke of how he was the shepherd but that he was also the door to the sheepfold. He was the one by whom we gain access. He's also the one who desires to lead and to guide us. And when he talked about entering, he said that we should not enter into temptation because that leads us to sin and to destruction. But when it came to his kingdom, the consistent message that we receive from the word of God is that we are to come to Jesus and that upon coming to him, there is something that happens that he describes as a part of entering in. And we know from the disciples' response and what they ministered in the book of Acts that being born again is the process whereby we enter. It is the process whereby we pass through the door. And Jesus came that we would have a door to pass through. Because before he came, there was no door. That's the purpose of the incarnation, was that there might be a door, there might be a way where there previously was not away and in line with what Jesus came and what he did and accomplished Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 he said I am crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ liveth in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me the same apostle wrote to the church at Colossae in chapter 2 and verse 12 and said buried with him in baptism wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead we are taught from the scripture that the the most I guess compact statement of what it means to be born again we know is found in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 where Peter said unto them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so to put those verses together and reflecting on the fact that Jesus is the door, we identify with the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. As Paul taught us, we are crucified with him, we are buried with him and we are risen with him. There is a complete identification 
that takes place. And when we go through that new birth, we pass through the door, as it were, and enter into the kingdom of God. Amen. I think most of us possibly understand that, but the kingdom of God in the scriptural text is speaking about both present tense, right now, when we're born again, we are in the kingdom of God today. He is our king. We do our best to honor him and serve him as our king, which means we are in his kingdom right now. But there is also yet to come that final fulfillment when Jesus will come back for his church and that kingdom will reach its fullness. It's, it's the perfect end design. Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for the door tonight. I'm thankful for the fact that Jesus made a way where there was no way. I'm grateful that we are living in an age where there is an opportunity where we can be saved from our sins, where it does not matter what road we've come from, our past does not matter. If we will come to Him, if we will hear His Word, if we will believe what He says and respond by faith, we can enter in through that door into His kingdom. Amen. To be able to enter into the kingdom of God is the greatest citizenship that has ever been. Now, you know, we're all, we all have a certain amount of pride of our backgrounds and our ethnicities and cultures. We had All Nations Sunday just recently, which was a great day. And there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of national pride to a certain point. There are some passports that are more beneficial when you travel the world. Some passports will get you into some countries. Some will keep you out of some countries. There are different benefits and there are different problems that come depending sometimes on where we come from. But when you become a citizen of the kingdom of God, when you are born again of water and spirit and you step through that doorway, you enter into having rights and privileges and a destination that no other country on the face of this planet has. We're not talking about currencies. We're not talking about passport stamps. But you have an eternal citizenship. Amen. Some of you have lived long enough to see the countries that you were born in have their borders changed and their names changed. His kingdom is forever and ever and ever. Its name will never change. He will never change. And as long as we walk with Him, we can trust Him that He is faithful. Amen. John chapter 10 and verse 9 says, Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, shall go in and out and find pasture. I want to draw your attention the statement in this verse where he said, and shall go in and out. Very important that we understand that this is not suggesting or encouraging that people would enter the kingdom through the door and then leave the kingdom and return at their convenience. That's not what this verse is talking about. The language in this passage is that of the shepherd and the sheepfold. And the shepherd would lead his sheep out during the day to find good pasture for grazing and good water, cool, still waters for drinking from and perhaps in the warmer weather they, the flock may spend the night on a hillside with the shepherd watching over them but generally the shepherd would lead them back into the sheepfold so when we read that language of going in and out it's not a statement of changing your mind all the time but rather it's a statement of a shepherd guiding and leading the flock both to places of nourishment but also back to safety amen that's what this verse and this passage is teaching us about. Unfortunately, there are people who live in a manner that they actually go in and out of the kingdom of God all the time. 
You know, they experience the goodness of God, maybe even the salvation of God, choose to live a life then where they check in with God from time to time. Just kind of high-five Him every once in a while just to make sure they're good and uh, instead of choosing to walk with God. This is a very dangerous form of going in and out. You see, when you pass through that door, when you're born of water and spirit, the door does not slam shut behind you, removing all risk of returning to a previous sinful life. I, there's a part of me wishes it did. There's a, it would help a lot of us, amen? <laughs> if when we got saved, he just bolted that thing shut and said, game over. But he did not do that. He did not do that. He did not lock the door and slam us in. This idea is connected to the very wicked doctrine of unconditional eternal security. What theologians would call it, or in a more easy way, is once saved, always saved. There are people that believe that once you've been saved, there's nothing that you can do to lose that. Doesn't matter what your actions are, doesn't matter what your conduct is, once you're in, once your passport stamped, nothing can change that. I wish that was true. You know, I wish that were true. My job would be a very easy. Once they're born again, I don't care where they go, they're going to heaven anyway. But unfortunately, the Word of God does not support that perspective. We are warned, we are exhorted, we are encouraged repeatedly through the Word of God to keep ourselves in the love of God, to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit to walk in the Spirit, that we would not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. They don't sound like instructions for somebody that it doesn't matter what they do. We're given lists of things in the epistles. The church is given lists of things that will prevent us from going to heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Those last four or five are right where our world is today. All different kinds of immorality. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty blunt. And Paul said, and such were some of you, just in case... They were feeling pretty good about themselves. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You've been set apart. You belong to Jesus now. We're doing these second group of lessons with Brother Woodward on Wednesday night about holiness, and I would encourage you to be there if you can. If you can't, watch them on the Facebook group. But we are sanctified. We're justified in the name of That means that we stand righteous somehow having done all those things. And being all those things, we're washed, set apart, and righteous in His sight by the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This passage might be referring to what we used to be, but it is in no way a suggestion that it's okay to go back. He's not saying, well, that's what used to be, but now you're washed, you can go back to that if you want to. That is not the testimony of Scripture. And just in case that wasn't clear enough, Peter said in 2 Peter 2, 22, 20-22, sorry, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end 
is worse with them than the beginning. That doesn't sound like do what you want, it's okay to me. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened according to them, according to the true proverb. The dog is turned to his own vomit again. And the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire, in the filth and the mud and the waste of the animals, if you look up the original Greek of that word. It's an incredibly graphic picture. It's a strong statement. It's a very strong statement. And, and we need to realize that if we have known the goodness of God and we walk away from that, as long as we're in that place of having walked away, we would have been better off not knowing. But if we're in that place, there's mercy and grace to come back. I'm grateful for that. Amen. But surely from these passages we can understand that, number one, it is both possible to return to sin. All of us have that capability. And that there are consequences for those actions that are severe. It is sobering to me to realize that we can easily walk out of the presence of Jesus, leave the room, as it were, and exit just as easily as we entered. Because the power of choice will be ours until eternity. I wish, I know in my own weakness and my own humanity and this stinking sinful carcass that I carry around every day, I wish he'd slammed the back door close. <laughs> I wish he'd got me through and nailed that thing shut. But he wants me to stay with him because I want to, not because I have to. In John chapter 10, the same chapter, not long after Jesus spoke about being the door and being the shepherd, he declared that if we follow him as his sheep, and as sheep follow their shepherd, he went on to say that nobody can pluck us out of the Father's hand. Nobody can. Now that, that's a promise that should encourage us, but at the same time it tells us a couple of very important things. Firstly, Jesus will always make a way for us to overcome or to endure whatever life brings our way. And secondly, I cannot blame anyone else if I walk away from God. If no man can pluck me from the Father's hand, then I am responsible for my soul. Nobody can pull me out, but if I'm foolish enough, I can walk out of my own volition. You know, I have no desire to be negative tonight, but the truth is that not everyone who starts finishes. Not everybody who starts finishes. Some will get caught up in false doctrine and go out. First John, the apostle said in First John 2 and 19, he said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now, let me be very clear. That verse is not given to us so that we can dismiss anybody who doesn't come to our church anymore. That verse is given to us because it applies to those who walk away from the truth of God's Word. It doesn't mean just because they're not in our building that they're not of us anymore. That, that's, a, that's an arrogant attitude. But when we walk away from truth, when we compromise on the truth of God's Word, what's in our hearts is made manifest, as the verse says. God 
You know, God, God reveals hearts in his time. And there's, there's, a, there's the parable, the account in the scripture where, where the, end of the, the, the mental blank, the guy who owned the property had sown good, good seed and an enemy came in and sowed tears, sowed weeds. Some suggest they were even toxic weeds amongst the good wheat. And when they came and they realized, when they begin to, to sprout, they realized, hey, this isn't what... And, and they said to the master, you know, you know, do we tear it all out? And he said, let it grow up together because we don't want to damage the good plants. But there does come a time. There does come a time when there's a separation, where the wheat is gathered into a barn and the junk is taken away and destroyed. I've lived long enough, and many of you can testify to this, to see that from time to time, God cleans house. <laughs> He does. And that's all right as long as he's cleaning the house. If we start cleaning each other out, we've got a problem. If I start deciding that you need to leave and you think I need to leave, that's not how the Lord wants it to happen. But from time to time, God will clean his house. Particularly when he's wanting to take a church somewhere and there are some folks that are only going to stop that from, or hinder that from happening, God will clean house. It's up to you and me whether we're cleaned out or we just stay in the place. Amen. You don't, you know, it's not, the Lord doesn't say, well, we've only got room for a hundred. There's now 103. We need three volunteers to go. There's room for everybody if our hearts are right. There's room for everybody if we love God. There's room for everybody if we want to do the will of God. And God will always, always be merciful and gracious and long-suffering. But when His will needs to go a certain direction, and there are people or circumstances that are interfering with that, he will clean his house. If you don't believe that, read Acts chapter 5 about a nice couple named Ananias and Sapphira. God was taking his church one way, and their actions were causing it to get a bit confused in this direction, and he cleaned house pretty severely. That was the ultimate spring clean. He took care of business. Because he cares about each one of us. But he cares about his church as a whole as well. Amen. Bless the Lord. God will reveal hearts. There are going to be folks that are going to find the word of God too strong to handle. John chapter 6 and verse 66 says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. If you read John 6, you'll see that Jesus was teaching some pretty strong things in this passage. That chapter, he starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And it weirded some people out, which was pretty understandable at the time, even to the point that he turned to the disciples and says, you guys going to leave as well? Will you also leave me? And it almost seems like they'd been thinking about it because they said, Lord, where else will we go? Kind of seems to imply they might have been looking at options. <laughs> but they said, well, Lord, we, we can't look, but you've got the words of eternal life. So we're, we're going to stick. Amen. We, you know, we have to understand that Jesus wants to multiply the loaves and fishes and feed us. But he's much more interested in transforming our lives from the inside out. Amen. The Apostle Paul endured more hardship and conflict, I'm pretty confident to say, than most of us ever will come close to. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he starts listing all the things. He talks about being beaten stoned, shipwrecked. He, he lists being in perils and dangers from all kinds of things. It says, it's not in my slides, but he, he where, where is it? He says, 
in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils amongst false brethren. He had peril, in peril, he was in perils constantly. He just, everywhere he turned, he found trouble. Not to mention being shipwrecked and stoned and beaten and imprisoned. And then he said, I dealt with all that before I even began to think about taking care of the daily needs of the church. Before I even began to worry about what the church needed. And then in 2 Corinthians 11 and 29, in the same context, he said, who is weak and I am not weak? He said, who's offended and I burn not? He said, in other words, he said, I know how it feels when you struggle. He said, I feel that too. He said, I know when you're offended. I feel it when you're offended. He said, it burns in me as well. Paul experienced many of the things that the people he was ministering to experienced. And as you ignore the chapter break and read straight on through the end of chapter 11 into chapter 12, it flows into that passage, very famous passage, where Paul had a thorn in his flesh and he said, three times I sought the Lord to take it away. And every time God said, nah. And then finally in verse 9 of chapter 12, he said, and he said unto me, after I kept asking him to fix my problems, he said, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Now that I understand that, most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities. Why? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. What's the point of all this? The point is that you're going to have opportunity to walk back out the door and return to the filth and the vomit of sin. But if we look to him, no man can pluck me out of the Father's hand. If I'm in Jesus' hand, nobody can move me. Only I can move myself. And if I'll keep looking to him, his grace is still sufficient. His grace is still sufficient. The message I have from the Lord is very simple, and that is the doors are closing. The doors are closing. You see that image that I use for my title slide. Many of us have seen that you've been at a train station and you hear that electronic voice say, doors closing, and you have to make sure you know what train you're supposed to be on. Because when the doors close, there's only two kinds of people in the train station, passengers and spectators. That's it. All different walks of life, different qualifications, people looking for jobs, people with great jobs, people doing all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, you're either on the train or you're not. That's, the, that's the, When the door closes, they're the only two groups of people that matter in the train station. Who's on board and who missed the train? <laughs> oh, but I have this degree. I have this, I've got all this money. I'm incredibly beautiful and talented and rich and wealthy and all these other things that some of you think you are. But if the door's closed and you're still on the platform, you missed the train. Your resume doesn't cut it. You're either on the train or you're off. Unless you're in India, Sister Bindu, where they just climb on the outside of the train, hang off the side. But I don't think they're electric trains. I think that might be a little bit dangerous. You've all seen those pictures. There's trains covered in people. It's one way to catch the train. I don't know if the tickets are cheaper on the outside or the inside. I'm not sure how that works. But throughout the Word of God, God has continually provided the opportunity to enter in and escape 
that which was coming. He's opened doors and invited people to step through those doors. When Noah was charged with building the ark, if you read Genesis chapter 6, the Lord gave him all the specifications for that floating zoo. But one of the specifications was it had to have one door on the side. One door on the side. In all the years it took Noah to build that thing, people were invited to enter in. Scripture says he was a preacher of righteousness. I don't know if I'm just slow, but I never really stopped to consider Noah. We know about his wife and his kids and their wives, but Noah had family. Noah had siblings. You look at chapter 5 of Genesis, Noah's father died five years before they entered into the ark. I wonder what Noah's dad's opinion was. I wonder if he was planning on being on board or he thought his son had completely lost his marbles. I don't know. Five years before the boat floated, his dad died. The Bible tells us that after Noah was born, his father had other sons and daughters. So Noah had brothers and sisters. I wonder what they thought about their brother and his actions. I wonder if some of them believed for a while. I wonder if some of them came and helped out for a while. Maybe they thought, hey, maybe there's something to this. And maybe they walked in and out of that door a little bit while that ark was being built. I don't know. But they were, Noah was an ordinary man with ordinary family. But when it was all said and done, the scripture says that God shut the door. He closed Noah in. Boom. Door was shut. Finished. No more. When the Israelites were finally delivered from Egypt on that first Passover night, they were to take blood from a spotless lamb paint the doorposts, the lentil of their houses, put that animal's blood all over and they were instructed to eat that lamb inside their homes. When the judgment of God passed through Egypt that night, there was a line, not a visible line, but there was a line that separated those who obeyed from those who did not. And that line was whether or not your firstborn was dead or it was alive. Every animal, every family, because of obedience And when they came out of Egypt and they faced the impassable Red Sea, a really big door was opened up. And a multitude of Israelites went through on dry ground. And when the Egyptians tried to follow, God closed that door as well. God had a way of opening things and shutting things. God had a way of saying, this is the line. If you're on this side, it's fascinating because when you read the story of the ark and the flood, except for eight people, All of humanity was destroyed by water. Yet the New Testament says that Noah was saved by water. (laughs) So it has a whole lot to do with which side of the line you're on as to how you see your outcome. You know, multitudes drowning, screaming, absolutely terrified. And a man and his wife, their three sons and their three daughter-in-laws inside this floating boat with all these animals not really sure what was going on. But the same water that destroyed the earth saved them. Don't tell me baptism is not important. (laughs) Because Peter, when he points to that, he says that's the example. That's the picture. That's the like figure whereunto now baptism does also save us. That's just a tank. But which side of the water you're on depends whether or not you've still got sins. Amen. 
And we get to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 25, starting verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps, went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Really what that tells me is they weren't prepared for the long game. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, and while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. Then all the virgins arose, trimmed their lamps. The foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. Or some translations suggest they were going out, about to go out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. You've got to have your own oil. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. And afterwards came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Now I'm not going to take... I could take a long time to talk about the process and the culture and all was going on with the marriage, but tonight I just want to point out the main reason for this parable is given in verse 13, that we do not know the hour when the Son of Man cometh. And that's when we have an opportunity to enter through that door. And if we've had that opportunity, we need to take it and we need to stay there. Because once it's closed, that's it. That's it. When John was instructed to write to the churches of Asia, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, everybody that reads those chapters and sees the health report of the seven churches wants to be in the church in Philadelphia, the church of Brother Love. Nobody says, man, I wish I was in Laodicea. Nobody's ever said that. Everybody wants and hopes that their church is the church of Philadelphia. And there are, as if, you, if you know that passage, you know that John, that the direction of the Lord wrote to those churches, wrote to the angel of those churches, which many suggest was the messenger or the pastor, the leader of those churches who was responsible for what was going on, and he gave them a report of their health. But there's a couple of things out of this passage, particularly to do with the church at Philadelphia, that I want to point out. In Revelation 3 and 8, it says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door that no man can shut. For you've just got a little strength, but you've kept my word and not denied my name. So God set the open door, not a man. They didn't need a lot of strength. They had enough. They kept his word. They didn't deny his name. One commentator suggests that the open door has two implications. One is it was a door for harvest, for souls to come in. The other was that it was a door of access to the throne of God and to his return. But writing to the same church a couple of verses later in verse 11, it said, Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. And we've already established that nobody can pluck us out of the Father's hand. So this verse is warning us to make sure that no one takes their crown. We have to understand we're in control of whether or not that happens. It's still in our hands. It's still up to us. So there... There is an open door presented before this church and we are urged to hold tight to what we have. And if we do this, and if we hold on, and if we don't go wandering off, in verse 12, it says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar 
in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Now, I've known that verse pretty well my entire life. In fact, we used to sing a, a portion of that as a chorus when I was growing up. You remember that, Brother Gavin? I should call you up here. We should bust it out together. What do you reckon? Probably not. But just recently, actually while my wife was ministering at the SALT meeting a week or so ago, the statement in the midst of that verse that said, and he shall go no more out, really caught my attention. I began to think about that, and that was, that was the seed that began these thoughts for tonight. You see, if I hang on, and you hang on to the sufficient grace of Jesus, then by His strength, while I'm still in my weakness, by His strength, I can be an overcomer, and you can be an overcomer. And if we overcome, when our time is finished... And the door to the old life is closed forever. We shall go no more out. That opportunity is gone. We will be established in his presence, in his kingdom forever. That back door will be finally shut. And we say, brothers and sisters, the doors are closing. We look around this world and we need to stir ourselves. You see, every one of the seven churches... We're given promises of if, if, you know, that if they would overcome, the Lord promised them things. He said if they would repent of their sins, if they would address their issues, if they would make the required changes that he wrote to them about, if they would be faithful and if they would hang on, God said, if you will overcome, and if you read those two chapters, you'll see all those promises. We just read the ones to Philadelphia that he would make them pillars in the temple of his God. And when those two chapters are finished, when those letters to the seven churches are finished and those promises that are extended to them if they overcome. In the very next verse, in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, John wrote, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. As one door closed, another one opened. Those of you that have keys to the church know that if you come down here on a windy day and you're going to lock up and that office door is open and you go through and open the glass door when it's windy, what happens to the door behind you? It slams shut so hard it scares the living daylights out of you. It's like one door opens and another one closes. And when the land of this life comes whether it's through death or it's through the catching away of the church, one door in a moment will close and another will open and we shall go no more out. Stand with me if you would tonight. Doors are closing. The doors are closing. There's great temptation to go for a wander. There's great temptation to wonder if it's really worth it to go out and see what the old life might have held, to see if the devil's really true. You know, that church just doesn't want you to be happy. They don't want you to have fun. They don't want you to enjoy all the things that are out there. They want your life to be miserable. I was thinking about it the other day, and again, it's just a simple concept 
I don't read anywhere in the Word of God that the devil learnt to read, but he can read your Bible as well as you can. Don't know if you've ever thought about that. He can read it in every language it's been printed in. He can read the ancient texts, and he knows what it says. And he is obsessed with getting us to walk away from it, to compromise it, to twist it, to dilute it, so that we are not overcome it. He doesn't mind if we have a version that is just comfortable. He doesn't mind if we adjust it to make it culturally sensitive and appropriate. He wants to do everything he can because he knows the power that's in the Word of God. The unique thing is none of the promises are for him, except the ones at the end of the book. (laughs) There's some promises that are only for him, but the promises of grace and mercy and forgiveness and sufficient strength in the midst of weakness, none of those are for him. And he knows that if we read this book and if we hang on to this book, then he cannot defeat us. And he also knows, because he can read it like we can, that the doors are closing. And he's trying to draw us out. And he goes, come on, just come out for a little while. Just have a little walk. Have a little look around. It's not that important. And the whole time the church is saying, doors closing. Doors closing. Stay on the train. Stay in the house. Stay under the blood. Stay in the house with the lamb. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's not worth it. You know, I've never met a single person that's walked away from God and told me it was worth it. I've known a lot of people in the 40 plus years I've been in the church that have walked away from God, but I've never had one say, oh, it was worth it. My life is so much better. Not one, if they're honest, will tell you that. The Bible tells us about Abner. The Old Testament stepped outside a city of refuge and a momentary lapse of judgment. Joab took him and smote him with a knife and killed him on the spot. And in his grief, David said, Abner died as a fool died. I don't want to be a fool. I want to stay in the church. I want to stay in the family. I would that you would lift your hands tonight and just worship him. The doors are closing, church. It's not time to give up. It's not time to go for a walk. Just have a look and see what's out there. The thief cometh not, but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. There is no mercy with the devil. There is no grace. There is no mercy. He wants to destroy. But if we stay under the blood, If we stay under the blood, if we stay full of the Holy Ghost, then we can say greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Oh God, I pray.